to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. It's like marijuana ought to be legalized. Good people smoke marijuana. Now, here's your host, Radical Russ Belleville. Good day, tokers and toquettes and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Friday, February 10th, 2017, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. It's episode number 887, and coming up on the show today, we've got the latest marijuana sales figures from the state of Colorado. In the Cannabis Focus, we take a look at cannabis use in the workplace in the era of marijuana legalization. My guest today for the activist agenda is Virginia cerebral palsy patient and medical marijuana advocate Creed Leffler. We've got a special new album offer for all of you fans of the awesome 80s. And for today's rant, I'll go off on President Trump's new executive orders to crack down on a crime wave that, like his approval ratings, is plummeting day by day. Plus, an hour or two, we'll tell you all about the pot squatch in Massachusetts. But first, let's get to the marijuana headlines. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis News. This is your Cannabis News for Friday, February 10th, 2017. In 2016, Colorado's dispensaries bagged $1.3 billion in recreational and medical cannabis sales based on Colorado Department of Revenue tax data released Thursday. To put the state's third year of regulated recreational marijuana sales in perspective, year one totaled $699.2 million combined with medical sales, and year two jumped up to $996.2 million. 2016 was the year in which the $100 million month became a baseline and heralded a record-breaking summer. The combined sales for July, August, and September were $376.6 million. Monthly sales topped $100 million in eight of the 12 months. In December, which is typically a strong month for cannabis transactions, pot shop sales were a little more than $114.7 million recorded in December 2015. Colorado brought in $199 million in taxes and fees revenue for the calendar year. Marijuana tax revenue is put toward areas such as school construction projects, public health, and law enforcement. Alaska marijuana regulators raided several retail pot shops that appear to be selling oil made from marijuana plants in violation of state law. The Alaska Alcohol and Marijuana Control Office, in a Thursday release, said enforcement officers seized items from several stores in the state that contained cannabidiol oil and appeared to be offered for sale. Cannabidiol is non-psychoactive, but the office says such oils fall outside the scope of current state law. Office declined to provide further specifics, citing an ongoing investigation. It says further details will be released as they become available to ensure licensees and the public know what the law requires for selling marijuana products. Kerry Kerrigan, executive director of the Alaska Marijuana Industry Association, said he was trying to get more information about what happened. Oregon is rolling out another first in the recreational marijuana industry. Customers may now order pot from licensed retailers and have it delivered directly to their homes. 
The Oregon Liquor Control Commission has granted delivery permits to 117 retailers across Oregon, including 13 in Portland last year, but postponed their permission until last month. Hawaii has given the green light to add a third dispensary to begin acquiring and growing marijuana. Oahu-based Manoa Botanicals got the State Department of Health's permission on Thursday. Aloha Green Holdings Incorporated of Oahu and Maui Grown Therapies are the only other businesses that have received state approval for cultivation out of the state's eight licensed dispensaries. The approvals allow the dispensaries to acquire and grow marijuana seeds, clones, and plants. The dispensaries may provide marijuana and marijuana products to patients registered with the department. The state legislature legalized medical marijuana dispensaries in 2015. But until last month, the state lacked a federally required software system to track the product from seed to sale. Before retail sales can begin, the health department must still test the marijuana products and connect patient registries to the tracking system. An Arkansas State Senate committee has advanced legislation that would leave the decision on whether to allow licensed medical marijuana dispensaries to grow their own pot up to a state commission. The Senate Public Health, Welfare, and Labor Committee on Thursday endorsed the proposal to let the Medical Marijuana Commission decide whether dispensaries that sell the drug can also grow it. An amendment voters approved last year legalizing medical marijuana allows licensed dispensaries and cultivation facilities to grow marijuana. The measure now heads to the full Senate and is among several proposals lawmakers are taking up after voters in November approved marijuana use for certain medical conditions. The commission is set to begin accepting license applications for dispensaries and cultivation facilities by July 1st. The Alabama Court of Civil Appeals is overturning a decision by a judge who let the state seize the car of a man whose adult son was accused of transporting marijuana. A decision released Friday says a Shelby County judge approved the seizure of a 1990 Chevrolet after Nathaniel Wallace III was arrested on marijuana charges in 2014. Police say he had used the car to haul and sell marijuana, but the man's father, Nathaniel Wallace Jr., appealed, arguing that the car was actually his and he didn't know what his son was doing. The father says he often lent his car to his daughter and son. The appeals court agreed, saying the judge was wrong to let the state seize the car. This has been your Cannabis News for Friday, February 10th, 2017. I'm Russ Belville. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. Today in the Cannabis Focus, we take a look at marijuana and the workplace. This is something that's coming up every time we pass marijuana legalization. And now that four more states have joined us in the group of legal marijuana states, especially California, people have a lot of questions as to what this means for the so-called drug-free workplaces. Now, just because the possession laws have changed in your state, whether that be Massachusetts, Maine, Nevada, or California, does not necessarily mean any sort of relief when it comes to workplace drug testing. It does not create any new rules regarding that. Uh, Specifically within uh, these laws, they say it does not uh, affect the employer's ability to maintain a drug-free workplace. Uh, The... Law on this has already been settled when it comes to medical marijuana throughout the states. In California, the case was the 2008 Ross versus Raging Wire case. Uh, This was a guy named Gary Ross. He was an employee of this company called Raging Wire, and he was a medical marijuana patient. He was fired following a positive drug test and then filed an anti-discrimination lawsuit against Raging Wire. 
The courts ruled in the company's favor because federal law trumps state law. And since federal law classifies marijuana as an illegal drug, the workplaces in California are perfectly valid in firing or not hiring or discriminating against medical cannabis patients. So if patients don't have the right to be able to use marijuana in the workplace, you can guarantee that the chances of getting that uh, right for those of us who are marijuana consumers for our own personal reasons is going to be a whole lot more difficult. We've gotten similar decisions in the rest of uh, the major medical marijuana states in Oregon, We had our decision, which was the uh, Emerald Steel decision. In Washington State, they had a similar decision. In Michigan, there was a decision like this that involved a Walmart employee uh, named Casayas, who was uh, quadriplegic, and uh, he was denied his workplace uh, rights because of his medical cannabis use. Uh, A similar case in Colorado, where a young man worked for DirecTV. Uh, I'm sorry, that was the guy who was the quadriplegic. The Casayas case, I think, uh, was a chronic pain case, if I'm remembering correctly. But in Colorado, a young man named Brandon Coates, a quadriplegic who had worked at a call center, uh, was denied his workplace rights because of his marijuana use. And the Colorado case is even more troubling in that medical marijuana at the time of that case was a constitutional right, or still is, a constitutional right in the state of Colorado. And on top of that, Colorado has a statute called the Lawful Off-Duties Activities Statute. And what this says is that a workplace in the state of Colorado cannot discriminate against someone for engaging in activities outside work hours that are perfectly legal. That is, if you want to uh, go to a demonstration, you want to join a club, uh, you uh, want to drink, you want to smoke cigarettes, you cannot be discriminated against in the state of Colorado when it comes to getting hired, getting fired, getting promotions, anything like that because of what you do off hours. So you'd think that Colorado having legal medical marijuana and now legal marijuana, both under their state constitution, would come under lawful off-duty activities. Unfortunately, that case has been decided too. A case went all the way to the Colorado Supreme Court, which decided that in the when it comes to lawful off-duty activities, federal law trumps state law once again. And since breaking federal law runs afoul of an off-duty activity that's illegal, employers in Colorado can still discriminate against people in the state of Colorado who are cannabis consumers or cannabis patients. We are working diligently to try to change this situation. Here in the state of Oregon, folks behind Portland Normal and their legislative committee have proposed a bill, and there's another bill, I believe, proposed by Sam Chapman at uh, New Economy Consulting. And these bills would add to the state of Oregon's current law when it comes to discrimination against tobacco smokers. The state of Oregon already has on the books a law that says if you're a cigarette smoker, we can't discriminate against you when it comes to hiring and firing. That's that's legal. It may not be a smart health decision, but it's a perfectly legal decision, and you cannot lose your job or be discriminated against because you smoke cigarettes. Well, it only makes logical sense to append cannabis onto that act, and that's what both of those bills will attempt to do. I believe the difference between the two of the bills has to do with opt-in versus opt-out, whether or not 
it's automatically a right, but certain cities have to opt out. Or if it's not a right and your city has to opt in, I think that's the difference. And I forget which one is which. Uh, another consideration as to whether or not there are collective bargaining agreements already in place that mandate some sort of drug testing and discrimination against cannabis consumers, that will be exempted. And I believe any sort of federal requirements, when we're talking about Department of Transportation or any of those federally sens safety-sensitive positions, would still be exempted under this proposed Oregon law. But this is the direction that the uh, laws need to take because we are currently being discriminated against in this country thanks to our use of cannabis in a way that people who drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes or take any manner of prescription drugs are not discriminated against. And most people will take this fight, take this argument to the medical marijuana side as to how cruel it is to deny a patient, someone who may already be on disability, someone who we want to get back into the workplace that it's terrible to discriminate against them. But as far as I'm concerned, it's equally bad to discriminate against healthy people and perhaps even worse to discriminate against healthy people for their use of marijuana. This is a culture that has accepted the uh, three martini lunch in the office for many, many years. Uh, and while it has declined over the past couple of decades from previous madmen type levels, we still live in a culture that is perfectly accepting of someone having a beer at lunch or going to the company Christmas party and getting very, very drunk. It's time to grow up in the workplace and it's time to understand that the idea that there's such a thing as a drug-free workplace is a myth. It has never existed the workplace has always had people on drugs, whether that's antihistamines or cough suppressants or aspirin or acetaminophen and naproxen, any sort of painkiller, all sorts of mood altering drugs, things like uh, 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 the uh, uh, Prozac and, and Wellbutrin and, and Levitra and other sorts of drugs to change people's minds and moods. These are handed out by our doctors for just about anyone who asks. And I have yet to work in a place that didn't have a receptionist desk or a, a nurse or somebody from whom you could get all sorts of cold medications, cough suppressants, aspirins, so forth. Combine that, the prescription drugs, and all the people that are the smokers and drinkers in the workplace, and you'd be hard-pressed to find any workplace that is truly drug-free. And the excuses for this don't hold up. Many employers will say that they have to drug test because of the Federal Drug-Free Workplaces Act. What they fail to tell you is that those acts that have to do with the workplace primarily affect federally controlled jobs, especially in Department of Transportation, the military, or anything with sensitivity of, to security, high, high security clearances, safety, and so forth. The Drug-Free Workplace Act does not mandate that private employers must drug test. Let me repeat that. The Drug-Free Workplace Act does not mandate that it, private employers must drug test. It says you must have a drug-free workplace, uh, a plan, a program. You must have a drug-free workplace program in place. You must tell your employees what that program is. You must have options for them as far as getting help for substance abuse. But nowhere in that act does it mandate a private employer requires drug testing. So that excuse goes out the window. Another excuse they give you is that they get a benefit on their insurance. Oh, we, we have to do it for the insurance break. Well, I'm 
I'm sorry, bribing companies through insurance breaks to mistreat their employees and to abrogate their Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights is hardly a bargain. And we should be boycotting these companies that do so. And when it comes to these excuses about workplace productivity or absenteeism or healthcare costs, all of these are shot out of the water when you consider workplace tobacco smoking. I can't tell you how many places I've worked where there's a number of employees who every two hours take 15 to 20 minutes off of work to go gather under some shelter outside to get their nicotine fix. A full hour of the workday, at least, is taken away by these nicotine addicts trying to get their fix. So I'm not convinced that the pot smoker is a productivity problem. Also, when you consider that workplace productivity, if you check the Bureau of Justice Statistics, you will, or Bureau of Labor Statistics, you will find that workplace productivity per hour has done nothing but go up and up and up since the 1980s, even as marijuana smoking has gone down in the 80s, up in the 90s, and leveled off in the 2000s. That is to say, despite great changes in cannabis use among the people, we do not see a corresponding change in the gross domestic product, in our workplace productivity. These are all lies. They're easily debunked and dismissed. So as we move forward in the era of legalization, we need to be pushing hard on the idea that we deserve equal rights in the workplace. It's not that we want to treat marijuana like alcohol. We want to treat marijuana users like alcohol drinkers. The substances don't care how you treat them. The people who use those substances care how you treat them. And that's the important point that we've got to get across. Fighting for our rights. All right, folks, that sound means that it's 20 after the hour time for us to take our mandatory union safety briefing. Hey, how do you like the stereo sound when I move like this? You can hear me go stereo, baby. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> Be right back right after this with Creed Leffler, a fantastic activist out of Virginia. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. Today in the Drug War Data Mines, we want to take a look at a drug other than cannabis, and this would be opioids. Uh, we're talking about heroin. We're talking about prescription drugs like Oxycontin, Percocet, Vicodin. The opiate overdose crisis has come to a head here in America, and people coast to coast are freaking out about it. It's also interesting to note uh, how the states and counties that overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump are the ones that have the greatest degree of opiate overdose crisis. Uh, this is a, a subject of Bill Maher's rant the other day about, um, about these folks. And, and it brings me to a point I always like to make about this. And that is we talk about having an opiate overdose crisis, but what we really have in this co country is a crisis of untreated pain of people that are suffering. 
That's what leads to this. People don't just decide to use drugs for the fun of it. A lot of times they're using it in response to uh, a shortcoming in their life, in, in their world, socially or physically when they're in great pain. Regardless, this has led to uh, an overdose death epidemic in this country where right now, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 91 Americans die every day from prescription opioids and heroin. 91 a day. Now, we're doing a lot to try to treat this. There is uh, naloxone, which is the opiate overdose cure. It's an instant cure, and we're starting to get this out to our law enforcement personnel, uh, cops, first responders, EMTs are starting to carry naloxone. That's going to help a lot of people. But these deaths continue to increase, and more than 6 out of 10 of the overdose deaths that happen in America involve an opioid. And usually it's not the opioid by itself. The opioid by itself can usually be used pretty safely. Oftentimes it's the combination of that opiate with alcohol that leads to the problem, having two depressants at the same time, or a case where someone is buying black market opiates and they've been laced with something more powerful. For example, heroin being laced with fentanyl. Since 1999, the number of overdose deaths involving opioids this would include the prescriptions and the heroin, quadrupled four times greater since 1999. From 2000 to 2015, more than half a million people have died from drug overdoses, 91 every day from opiates. They're a driving factor in this opiate overdose death rate. The prescription drugs are. People think of this opiate overdose thing and they tend to think of heroin. They tend to think of illegal drugs. Folks, it's mostly we're talking as prescription drugs here. Since 1999, the amount of prescription opioids sold in the U.S. nearly quadrupled. Now, in addition to these opiates quadrupling, keep in mind, the ONDCP, the, the, the DEA, has an office of drug diversion, of diversion control is what it's called. And their job is to approve, part of their job, is to approve the quotas for the drug manufacturers, how much Oxycontin can they make? How much Percocet can they make? And since the medical marijuana era, they have allowed that quota to increase over 1,600% for some of these drugs. So the fact that there are more of these drugs out there, the fact that the doctors are prescribing them more often, we've got a situation now where a quarter billion a quarter billion of these prescriptions have been written out. There are enough prescriptions for opiates in this country so that every American can have their own bottle. Every American can have their own bottle of prescription opioids. These uh, prescription opioids, of course, lead to uh, dependence, sensitivity to pain, constipation, nausea, vomiting, dry mouth, sleepiness, dizziness, confusion, depression, low testosterone, low sex drive, itching, sweating. And of course, we've found recently that the states that have access to medical cannabis, have access to marijuana, have lower rates of opiate deaths. One quarter lower. One quarter fewer deaths and fewer pills being prescribed by about 1,500 fewer pills per doctor in the states that have the option of medical cannabis. Nearly half of these opioid overdose deaths involve a prescription 
uh, a prescription opiate. In the highest prescribing state, in Alabama, they wrote three times as many prescriptions per person as they did in the lowest prescribing state, Hawaii. And we found nationwide, despite the fact that we're getting a quadrupling of the opiate prescriptions, opiate overdoses, the, um, the pain being reported to doctors across the country hasn't changed much at all. Now, my theory on that is that the only people who can report their pain to doctors are people that can afford to go to doctors. And a lot of people that are using these opiates, using heroin, don't have health care. That's why they're on these drugs. That's why they end up in a bad situation with them. The most commonly overdosed opioids, 1,000 people a day, more than 1,000 people per day, are treated in emergency rooms for their opiate use, more than a thousand per day. Methadone, oxycontin, hydrocodone, usually affecting people between the ages of 25 and 54. Higher rates of overdose for non-Hispanic whites, American Indians, and Alaskan natives. And as of 2014, nearly two million Americans either abused or were dependent on prescription opioids. One in four who are using opioids long-term are struggling with addiction. That is part of why I think the war against marijuana won't take off as much as it could because people are now more worried about the opiates. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. disturbing elements of the prohibition war is how it's made police the enemy of otherwise law-abiding cannabis consumers fortunately one group of police officers knows the futility of prohibition and reaches out to educate the community and current law enforcement today the russ belleville show visits with another speaker from law enforcement against prohibition with one clear message cops say legalize drugs All right, welcome back, everybody. 30 after the hour, and I'm going to have to get a new introduction recorded because the group that was formerly known as Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, like Prince, has changed their name. It's now Law Enforcement Action Partnership, and joining us to talk about it, we've got Lieutenant Commander Diane Goldstein, a board member of LEAP. How you doing, Diane? Hey, Russ. It's nice to hear your voice. We haven't chatted since, uh, I believe, New York. Yeah, that's been been a while. It's always good to talk to my friends from Leap. And, uh, you know, the last time we saw each other, you and myself and uh, Neil Franklin, the executive director, you guys were kind of mulling this over that you were going to be changing your uh, your 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 a- action partnership. You're going to change your mission. Uh, tell folks about that process, about uh, what made you want to change the group from being law enforcement against prohibition to law enforcement action partnership. You know, this process, um, even though we were discussing it kind of in like we're mulling it over, I think that we from the board of directors had been had been having this conversation 
for about the last year plus. And one of the issues was that um, we see as part of our role is bringing more law enforcement over to our side. And what we were seeing is we were getting a ton of pushback because we were just against something and not necessarily proposing policy. So in, in since 2002, although we've done an amazing job of going out and educating law enforcement and lawmakers and, and the public, is um, we still had active duty criminal justice professionals who were reluctant to join us because of a lot of the stigma associated with substance use or abuse, so to speak. Um, and so this was a very carefully crafted um, change that resulted from us really looking at our mission, our vision, and how best to sustain this organization long term to really uh, create change in the criminal justice system. And so since our launch, um, Seattle, uh, the Seattle, the elected uh, Seattle City Attorney Pete Holmes has joined us as a speaker. Since our launch just, you know, less than a month ago is uh, we've had several active duty police officers that, in fact, have joined us that are now safe to do so without retribution from their law enforcement organizations. That's great news. Uh, so the idea here, then, is not deep abandoning the position of fighting against the drug war, but folding that into a broader uh, message. Um, yes. So let me be very clear that ending the drug war is and will always be the number one goal of our new organization, which is not a new organization. I think um, I, I was talking to another activist, Charmy Golson, uh, when we launched and I sent her our um, new website. She says, well, what's really different? And there really isn't anything except for now we're in a place where it's not just discussing the harms of the drug war, but clearly identifying many of the solutions and the policies that we can change. So drug policy will always be the root of what we're trying to bring down. But we're now rather than, you know, cutting down the, the, this very diseased tree that has all these collateral consequences. We want to build good policy and we need active duty law enforcement and criminal justice professionals to do that as well as legislators. Many of the discussions that I've had with folks from uh, law enforcement against prohibition over the past couple of years have dealt with the, uh, the, the tragic shootings that have happened. Unarmed uh, black men. Oftentimes these are drug related or at least the investigation began because drugs were assumed to be related. Was that a motivating factor for, uh, for you, for Neil Franklin? I know he came up in the in hard streets of Baltimore. Was that a motivating factor for when you broadened this mission? Um, you know what? I think, um, you know, I'll speak for myself. Yes. Um, and for Neil as well, um, is I think what this allows us to do is to talk about how we change law enforcement training. You know, it is, I'm, I'm in grad school right now, and it's interesting that I'm writing a paper on uh, the subculture of law enforcement and how we effectively change organizations from within. And this allows us to broaden the scope and basically say, 
hey, look, there are some state-of-the-art law enforcement academies that are out there. For example, uh, state of Washington has an academy that has completely changed the dynamics of their law enforcement training to emphasize the protection of life. That, you know, that's our first priority. And, and they have um, contributed to the growing research on de-escalation and communication and how that can, in fact, reform law enforcement agencies and make both police officers safer and the community. Well, that, that's something I'm glad to hear because it's, it's, it's been something I've been paying attention to a lot in, in the interviews that I've done. And this is you know just one of many areas where I, I believe law enforcement uh, action partnership can be helpful to us. Uh, what are some other areas of policing that LEAP might get involved with? So civil asset forfeiture reform, we've been talking about it for years, uh, and it's never really been a primary focus of our organization. That is now one of the significant pillars of of what we're going to be addressing. You know, I think obviously you wrote an article um, with within the last couple of days on the um, the statement by 45 to the sheriff uh, on we're going to destroy a, sen- a senator's career because he's proposed reforming a clearly so- supported bipartisan policy. Um, you know, both Republicans and Democrats alike are supporting reforming and ending civil asset forfeiture reform. So that's going to be a huge tenet because we don't want to see the rollbacks uh, that that may occur if we don't reform forfeiture at the state level. I'm glad you bring up the uh, civil asset forfeiture. Uh, I've been putting together uh, some audio from the new attorney general, Jeff Sessions, uh, and I found this clip from him from one of the uh, one of the one of the. Uh, uh, one of the meetings, one of the hearings they had on Capitol Hill uh, regarding what they call the equitable sharing program of asset forfeiture. Let me play that for you and then ask you a question, get some comment on that. Just one second. The federal government has a good system for forfeiting. Try that again. Oh, no. I wouldn't you know it froze up on me just while I was trying to play that for you. Uh, let's see if we can get that uh, clip to play for you one more time here. Let's try no, it doesn't want to play. Okay, well, I'll just go ahead and just ask you the question directly. Uh, it, it, it appears that uh, Attorney, Attorney General Sessions is uh, quite fond of the equitable sharing program and lamented the uh, Eric Holder's uh, direction to uh, dismantle that program and stop the sharing with the state and local authorities of the assets that are seized in criminal cases. Uh this doesn't bode well, I think, for any movement on this asset forfeiture. Have you guys heard anything different or or have any plans to press this with the uh, the Department of Justice? So, you know, it, it's very interesting. Um, one of the things that I've seen in the last couple of years, not just on the issue of cannabis reform, but around the issue of civil asset forfeiture reform, is that the states increasingly are passing significant civil asset forfeiture reform legislation. And in large aspects, I think that's going to be the way that we push Congress to eliminate, if which is really the long-term goal. There should be no such thing as civil asset forfeiture, you know, unless it's agreed upon, you know, fine um, or some other type of forfeiture that 
that we've used in the past, but the notion that someone's property is guilty and you have to prove it innocent violates every tenet of our constitution. Absolutely agreed. And it was pointed out that in that uh, in that remark that President Trump made uh, to the Sheriff's Association, the sheriff had brought up a Texas state senator who proposed. And I don't think this is too radical a notion. He had proposed that, gosh, maybe somebody ought to be guilty before we take their stuff. And President Trump dismissed that and said, can you believe it? And uh, can you even understand the people on the other side of this issue? Uh, what is it with these people? They don't understand the basics of our of our uh, constitutional democracy. Well, I think that part of the issue is, is you have to go back and look at the history is, you know, like every other broad based law that we've enacted is even the founders of uh, uh, Brad uh, Cates and Yoder, John Yoder, who started the federal civil asset forfeiture uh, program in 1980, state today, and in fact, Brad Cates is working with Institution of Justice, um, uh, and I've done some work with Brad around this issue. They state today that the program is so corrupted that it needs to be completely eliminated, that there is no fixing the federal equitable sharing program. And so I think what's interesting is with people like Brad Cates and John Yoder and, you know, we're finding partners in in both sides of the aisle. Um, You have to remember in California last year, we had a two year battle with law enforcement on this issue. And we had a very interesting partnership that I would walk in to legislators office with a member of the Heritage Foundation the um, lobbyist for the Drug Policy Alliance, myself, and a member of the ACLU. So all of us may not agree on a lot of different issues, but on this issue, it's very clear there's a huge support uh, (coughs) in the public and in politicians to end the practice. There does seem to be a a lot of... uh momentum or a lot of uh, energy from the law enforcement community, though, to keep this practice. And and uh, it seems to me that the, all this practice does is it, is it basically incentivizes state and local uh, uh, authorities to help the feds go after their their drug cases when without that booty, they might not do so. Correct. There's there's no if, ands or buts about it is. Um, one of the things that we managed to do in, in California uh, legislation is we actually uh, enhance the protections for, for California residents who may be impacted by federal joint narcotics task forces. So in, in California right now, if uh, you own any real property or have cash up to $40,000, it requires a conviction, whether it's on the federal level or on um, the state level. And so uh, we would we would like to continue to, you know, uh, raise that uh, monetary amount uh, in order to continue to provide pr- protections. But that was a compromise that was kind of a win win for the legislators and law enforcement. Another issue in our criminal justice system that has been exacerbated through the uh, the war on certain American citizens using non-pharmaceutical, non-alcoholic, tobacco-free drugs 
is the use of mandatory minimum sentencing. And this is something else that came up uh, in a couple of the uh, reviews or a couple of the hearings with uh, Senator Sessions at the time. And he was also a, a bit apoplectic about the idea that we would be reducing mandatory minimums, not throwing the book at people. Uh, what uh, concrete steps can we take and what steps are our leap taking to fight against this abuse of mandatory minimums? Um, you know what is uh, across every state, uh, and I think this is going to be one of those things that is, is again, going to be a state-by-state state fight as we're working with coalition partners, um, the ACLU, and and other, I think it's Americans for Safe Justice. You know, the, the CKI institution, the Charles Koch Foundation, is working to reform the criminal justice system right on crime, is, is we've developed some very, very significant relationships that will help prevent that. And I think like everything that happens at the state level, we can protect our citizens under the 10th Amendment and then use that as pressure for the federal government to butt out of the criminal justice system around the issue of drug use. You know, it is for years, I think that that they have overreached. And I think that's my concern with 45's administration is, is he honestly has no clue about policy and he's reverting back to, you know, the Richard Nixon law and order, throw away the book, uh, on people. And, you know, I heard his speech to the, to the major chiefs association and it really concerns me to hear that language again, of we're going to be ruthless on drug offenders, uh, instead of where, where we finally got the Department of Justice and the Drug Czar's office to start talking about chronic substance abuse more from an, from an issue of harm reduction and compassion and recognizing that we can incarcerate our way out of this issue. And and that's the rhetoric we're getting from uh, now Attorney General Sessions in the in the previous uh, couple of years in the hearings. He has many times uh, re- evoked the memory of Ronald and Nancy Reagan, particularly uh, singling out the Just Say No program. He says it it cut the drug use by half. It cut the murders by half. Crime went down. He thinks the Just Say No era was uh, when America was great. And I think he wants to make America great again. Uh, are you worried about that from uh, from that perspective, the rhetoric perspective? Oh. I'm hugely worried about the rhetoric perspective. And, you know, I, I think that the next um, the next couple of years, because, you know, I'm not projecting out four years. I'm projecting out to 2018 and the midterm election is um, what I'm hoping is, you know, his use of executive orders, which has been horrific, uh, much worse than than um, 44s were. Uh, in addition to the the rhetoric, may very well um, be the catalyst for change in uh, the Senate and in the House of Representatives. And then, it, so so really, the the target and the strategy is hold that line. Man, I'm feeling like this is football at this point. You know, we're, <laughs> we're we've gone from playing offense to playing defense, and and we have got to hold that line. And not lose any of the games that we made. Mm, as as a Packers fan, I don't want to hear about defense. Um, <laughs> we could use some over there too in Green Bay. Uh, so let's talk a little inside baseball now on this because uh, the evolution uh, leap was first formed in what two thousand two? Is that right? Correct. 
Okay, so Leap was formed as law enforcement against prohibition in 2002. And early on, there was kind of a schism in between, well, some of us think we should legalize pot, but maybe not the other drugs. Whereas Leap was like, no, we should legalize all drugs. As you've moved forward now and expanded this into law enforcement action partnership, is there an internal break as well from some that say, hey, we're going, we're straying too far from the mission of ending the war on drugs? Um, yeah, there, yeah, there has been a schism, but you have to understand is our mission is still to legalize all drugs. Our, our mission is to end the drug war. That's not going to change. Um, and, and by broadening the mission, I think it's going to make us stronger and it, and it's going to make us, um, you know, in the last couple of years, we have not been outliers on the issues of cannabis. But we continue to be outliers on the issues of, you know, what do we do with all the other drugs? And um, I think this gives us the ability to continue to craft the message that our drug policies are a human rights disaster, um, you know, here and abroad. Plain, simple, end of story, that is not going to change at all. And um, I think it, it's also going to allow us to be smarter. You know, I use the the strategy and talking about states' rights all the time, not just on the issue of cannabis, but on the issue of every other drug. And in California, our, you know, substance use or how we want to enforce our drug policies is different than how New York or Idaho does, you know. And, and so it is, I think we're, the next couple of years, we're going to make more gains on the state levels. Um, and I think we're going to lose a little bit on the federal level, but there's hope. I mean, Dana Rohrbacher and several other Democrats just, you know, once again is introduced a bill to respect states' rights. And, and, and I think that's how we're going to be able to sell other Republicans on it. I sure hope that's the case. Uh, my only fear of a backlash on the states' rights argument is somebody saying, yeah, but doesn't Idaho, Kansas, and Nebraska have the right to not have legal weed pouring over their borders? We shall see. We'll see how that turns out. Uh, it sounds to me as though the, the move to law enforcement action partnership, uh, broadening the mission is going to bring in more law enforcement professionals. And what I'm hoping to see is maybe some more of the active duty, uh, police officers, uh, getting involved. Is, is that something that you're, you're hoping for or seeing happen from this transition? We're already seeing it happen and we're actively out there, uh, meeting with with people who are active duty criminal justice professionals, whether they're, you know, district attorneys or judges or police officers or DEA agents, we already have been very, very strategic in establishing relationships with people even before this launch. And, and so I think that's going to be very beneficial. And, and if it's people that maybe can't speak out at this point, they're opening up their own network to, to us as well. And so I think that's, that's, really critically important. And, you know, it's, I, I want to go back. One of the things that's been very interesting relative to this issue of, of, um, you know, what's going on with the new administration. I've also been very pleased to see, you know, law enforcement agencies say things like, you know what, it's not my agency's role to help the federal government with immigration. Charlie Beck just said it at LAPD. The new San Francisco police chief just said it. In fact, I, I just read a, a, a policy memo from the Major Chiefs Association. In fact, I, I, the Los Angeles County District Attorneys uh, Association came out and said the exact same thing. 
So, you know, I, I don't think Trump has every, um, you know, police agency or, or administrator in his pocket is I, I think law enforcement, I'm hoping is going to be able to do the right thing and say, there are things that is within our purview. And this just isn't one of them. And we're not going to help you. We're speaking with Lieutenant Commander Diane Goldstein. She is a board member with Law Enforcement Action Partnership. You can learn more about them at leap.cc. And we're speaking to her in the state of California. And that brings me to the next subject. The, uh, the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, and it looks as though a big priority of his Department of Justice is going to be immigration, especially considering how much Donald Trump has made that an issue in his uh, campaigning. Uh, a recent article with uh, John J. Hudak from the uh, Brookings Institute uh, back that up, saying that that'll be probably one of their biggest fish to fry. And in response to that, this, your state, the state of California, is moving forward with a plan to be a sanctuary state. And I don't go too far into the immigration issue here, but basically saying, flouting the federal government and saying, we're not going to have any California law enforcement help out with the immigration issue. Do you think that this could be California versus the federal government on immigration? And if so, would they go to bat for us on the marijuana issue as well? Well, you know what uh, is I think um, our new attorney general during his uh, confirmation hearing in California. So the California attorney general Becerra said that he will defend the California marijuana laws to the federal government. So it, it and yes, I, I honestly do believe that the state of California has basically said, because we're going full board in, in you know, control regulation and implementation of not just McCursa, but uh, Proposition 64, as is other states. And so I think one of the things that'll be very interesting to see what I would like to see down the road, not just in California, but in other states, is that legislators do policy just like we're doing on the issue of immigration that says that bars local law enforcement with cooperating with federal law enforcement efforts to, uh, you know, uh, destroy our regulated medical marijuana or adult consumption industry, that we can't prevent the federal government from coming into our state, but we sure don't have to help them. And frankly, the federal government does not have the resources to do it. And so that's going to be the big issue is, you know, if we can't continue to push that line and say, look, you know, if the federal government wants to come in and, and um, arrest cartel members because they're illicitly growing marijuana in, in our state or national parks, let them. I don't have any issue with that. You know, uh, but if they want to come in and go after like a James Sladek or other people who who have been licensed um, by the state, then I have a huge issue. All right. We're speaking again with uh, Diane Goldstein from Leap and we're approaching the top of the hour. So I want to make sure we get a couple of other subjects in here uh, before I let you go, because, you know, now that your your mission is broadened, we got so much more we can talk about. There's things that I've been concerned about, and I'm hoping Leap is concerned about them as well. And that would have to do with the use of the uh, uh, the shoe, the secure housing unit, the uh, solitary confinement. Is Leap going to be getting involved in the issues like that with, you know, fair imprisonment and, and, and torture and such? You know what? We haven't gone that 
deep and nuanced. Um, I know that we have individuals um, from LEAP that, that have spoke out about issues like that. And so I think it's going to depend on, you know, is there new legislation that we can support that may impact that? You know, uh, is it something that our coalition partners are proposing? You know, not every single policy issue is one that I think that we're going to actively uh, do, but we may work in conjunction with someone else. Gotcha. Does it, that make sense? Yeah. Some, I guess, I guess in a broader sense, I'm trying to gauge how broad does this uh, new partnership go to? Is it issues of just policing the courts, the prisons, the probation? I mean, how far are we going to cover? So here's the pillars. Look at the pillars. It's good. Police accountability, transparency, you know, issues like body cameras, training, um, you know, mass incarceration, uh, you know, is working with organizations, whether it's FAM or someone else, uh, on the issues of clemency. And we, like, for example, you know, during the lead up to Obama leaving, uh, we were actively writing clemency letters for, for prisoners who were in prison at the federal level. Um, you're going to see issues of safe injection facilities, harm reduction, needle exchange programs. Um, you know, uh, developing maybe uh, other crime prevention um, policies that, that uh, you know, the, the use of how do we define and, uh, and evaluate um, an effective law enforcement agency. So the issues of community policing and how best to implement those. So I think that there's a lot of different things that we can fit under those pillars, so to speak. Absolutely. And uh, the one final uh, topic here, uh, the Department of Justice under the previous attorneys general have done some reviews of certain police departments like Chicago and Baltimore, where they found uh, problems with uh, pattern and I forget the other term practice. pattern and practice pattern and practice. And, and uh, the latest word I heard from uh, the Trump administration was they were going to get away from that and, and go to, you know, it's only just a few bad apples and just singling out the bad apples rather than. Yeah. You know, noticing that the rest of that saying is spoils the bunch. Uh, any yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. It's, so you have to look at the history of consent decrees in law enforcement, and largely they have uh, revolved around the issue of which party was in power. And so we, you know, we didn't have that an emphasis on consent decrees during you know Reagan, Bush, and Bush, but we did maybe during Clinton and Obama. And and so I think I think Trump um, isn't necessarily being an outlier in it. I don't agree with it. I think that consent decrees are in fact uh, a necessary part of the the proper role of the Department of Justice in evaluating the legitimacy of law enforcement agencies. And um, I think that's one that that down the road we're really going to have to both personally and as an organization we're going to have to watch and work with other advocates like the ACLU or other organizations who will clearly be bringing up lawsuits in order to uh, rectify some of the policing problems like they've done in the past. Well, that's fantastic news. And uh, we're just about out of time here, but I want to thank Diane Goldstein from Leap for joining us and uh, congratulations on the, on the new mission and good luck moving forward in the future. No problem, Russ. And Hey, by the way, I'm going to be in Portland in April. Oh, I will see you here in April. I sure will. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks so much.
All right. Thanks to your listeners. Yeah, you betcha. And uh, that's all the time we've got for this hour. And I've got all sorts of weird things happening with my uh, automation software. So uh, if if I seem distracted, it's because I am. <laughs> things don't want to work when I want them to work. All right. Well, uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have our hour two here, uh, our Toker Talk radio coming up uh, right after I can make things go. Go, I say, go. Go. <laughs> <laughs> 